0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: Warren Buffett has long held the stage as the world's most celebrated investor. But now that he's named a successor to run Berkshire Hathaway, the conglomerate must face some hard truths about its future. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Bogue, Finance Editor at The Economist. And also on today's show, what are corporate boards for? We ask whether a 400-year-old model can be reinvented for a new era of business. And, as older people have moved by the millions to shopping online, can companies keep up with the silver surfers? First, the annual shareholders' meeting of Berkshire Hathaway attracts such a crowd that it's been dubbed Woodstock for Capitalists. This year, for the second running, groupies eager for a glimpse of their hero Warren Buffett have had to content themselves with the live-streamed version. And it was quite a show. Mr Buffett, aged 90, alongside his right-hand man Charlie Munger, even older at 97, took three hours of questions but the highlight for Buffetologists was an apparent slip of the tongue by Mr. Munger.
2: Well, but that's absolutely true, but I would say this, decentralization won't work unless you have the right kind of culture accompanying it. Yeah, but we do. Yeah,
3: we do, but, and but it's dependent is, on it. And, I Greg, mean. Will, and Greg, Greg will keep the culture.
1: The following day, Mr. Buffett confirmed that Greg Abel, the head of the conglomerate's non-insurance operations and a comparative spring chicken at 58, has been named heir to Mr. Buffett's kingdom.
3: Now Charlie Munger's known for his spicy provocative you know unscripted comments but this was quite unexpected.
1: Matthew Valencia has long covered Mr Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway as a senior business writer for the Economist.
3: That's a really big deal because you know Berkshire's widely seen as as synonymous with Warren Buffett you know he's run it since the 1960s he almost single-handedly drove its early success. Publicly naming uh, a successor really kind of focuses minds on the big questions. And and perhaps the biggest of all is, you know, what Berkshire is likely to be without Buffett.
1: Now, it's really remarkable that the naming of Buffett's heir should have happened so chaotically and messily. What do you think it says about the state of the company that Mr Abel inherits?
3: The way it happened in some way sort of fits with a bigger pattern. Because on the one hand you have you know this company which is it's a huge public company uh, Berkshire has a, a market cap of over six hundred billion dollars and there's you know a huge amount to admire in both Buffett and the company you know he turned what originally was a a fairly small troubled textiles firm into a, a giant conglomerate it has interests in railways property insurance consumer goods. And of course, it also has a big portfolio of blue chip stocks, which is worth something like $300 billion. You know, in, the, in the 50-something years since Buffett took over, its shares have, have gone up by something like 20% a year on a compounded basis. And that's roughly double the rate at which the S&P 500 has grown. Having said all of that, you know, things haven't looked quite so good uh, over the past decade or so. The financial performance has, has looked frankly, less stellar than it did in in the previous decades. Uh, and there are growing questions in financial markets about how Berkshire's is being run, uh, its governance. You know, that obviously leads to questions about, you know, whether Berkshire's set up to do well in the future.
1: And let's dig a little deeper into uh, Berkshire's recent financial performance. Why has it been lagging?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the performance hasn't been so, so great recently. Uh, operating profit, which is the measure that that, that Buffett himself tells people to focus on, was down by about 9% in 2020 to about $22 billion. And, and that was after a flat 2019. Its shares have badly underperformed the S&P over the past few years. In both 2019 and 2020, um, it, it, it underperformed quite substantially. And in fact, its performance relative to the index has been slipping for, for quite a bit longer than that. And th- this is partly a problem that, that you know many fund managers have had which is the bigger you get the harder it is to move the needle you know to outperform the the benchmarks but there are also questions over capital allocation which is something that the Buffett's always prided himself on he, he thrives during crises Buffett uh, or he has done in the past but um, not so much in this one and as a result has felt more pressure to do something with that cash uh, it ends up responding by stepping up um, buybacks of of its own stock although it's still not paying a dividend it never has you know, when it comes to investments over the past few years, there's there's been a few that have soured, like um, its big stake in Kraft Heinz, the, the big consumer goods company. Uh, it's also arguably mistimed buying and selling of certain sectors, so airline stocks. But having said that, one thing that's really helped Berkshire through all of this is its big stake in Apple, which is quite a rare tech investment for for, for Buffett. And that stake alone has has given it a gain of something like 90 billion dollars over five years so it's really been a big help
1: now you mentioned apple there beyond that um berkshire hasn't invested very heavily in tech stocks and the landscape of investment has obviously changed dramatically do you think mr buffett's sort of well positioned to take advantage of those
3: changes you know he has a company that still generates a lot of profit you know it made over seven billion dollars of operating profits in the first quarter um the, the the results that were just announced but it also faces you know, quite a few challenges. You know, there's competition from corporate buyers, but also increasingly you're seeing um, private equity funds muscling in, um, you know, they're overflowing with, with money at the moment and um, you know, they're looking for deals. You also have the, the SPACs, the special purpose acquisition companies, which have been popping up all over the place. You know, on top of that, Berkshire has less of an advantage these days uh, when it comes to cost of capital. It's always had a, a, a relatively low cost of, of capital. And that's largely, I should say, because of uh, the giant float it has from, from its insurance business, uh, Geico, well over $100 billion of float from Geico. But, you know, these days the cost of capital is low for everybody. So, you know, that's an advantage that's diminished. On the other hand, you know, some analysts are looking at Berkshire and saying, well, the economic pendulum is now swinging back towards the kind of firms that that Buffett likes. You know, he likes industrial companies, mature firms that have steady cash flows. Those sorts of companies are likely to benefit from things like, you know, the massive increase, the expected increase in infrastructure spending.
1: What do Berkshire's investors make of all this? I mean, the recent lagging performance, the, the promise potentially from in- infrastructure companies, surely they're not staying quiet about all this?
3: No, they're not. Uh, I mean, some investors are pushing for Berkshire to, to try to make more money from its, its big divisions. Other investors are saying that, you know, Buffett should be more hands-on when it comes to Berkshire subsidiaries. But that, that would sort of go against the grain, really, when it comes to sort of how it's managed and its governance divisions have always been given you know a great deal of, of autonomy it doesn't hold investor days it doesn't hold analyst calls it doesn't really have a, an investor relations function that approach is is increasingly at odds with global corporate trends there's also concern about the board a bit too old too close to to Buffett
1: do you think um, Berkshire is likely to be broken up I mean Wall Street types often talk about um, unlocking the value from conglomerates what do you think would happen if it were
3: it does seem that Berkshire trades at less than the sum of its parts it seems to have a conglomerate discount of something like five percent perhaps more towards ten percent but there there does seem to be a discount but nevertheless he, he's he's always insisted that you know well-run conglomerate has a number of of advantages it's not wedded to to the status quo in any particular industry because it's, it's spread across a number of different industries. It's more able than the typical multinational to move capital around between businesses without incurring tax. It will probably ultimately depend on the composition of the, the shareholder base because at the moment, Buffett owns 30% of the votes. Another 40% of the votes are held by around 1 million individuals mostly long-term loyalists. But the composition of the shareholder base is changing over time. Um, You have shareholders that are ageing, dying. And his own stake is, you know, his plan is for that to be uh, handed out to foundations over time, over about 12 years, and for them to sell those shares into the market as quickly as they can. And, you know, one expert described, you know, the potential shifts in the shareholder base to me as Berkshire's Achilles heel.
1: Whether Berkshire's eventually broken up or not, pressure for change is undoubtedly going to keep rising. And um, a change of command is surely only going to intensify some of those demands. What changes do you think are going to be necessary?
3: Well, I don't think it needs to switch to the kind of command and control system that you see more typically in, in multinationals. But, but it could certainly do with, you know, a bit of an overhaul when it comes to governance, when it comes to disclosure you know, somebody needs to take a a good hard look at at performance in in certain areas. And of course, the really big question is, you know, when should Buffett go? Should he stay or should he go? And uh, he's clearly reluctant to to retire. You know, he he once joked about retiring five or 10 years after he dies, but we know who his successor is going to be now. And it's probably in the best interests of Berkshire that he hands over to, to Greg Abel sooner rather than later and allows him to sort of get on with making some of those changes.
1: Well, we may well be having this conversation every year until Mr. Buffett turns 100. But um, for now, Matthew Valencia, thank you very much. I
3: look forward to that. Thanks, Rachna.
1: For much more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. This week, we've got an investigation of how new technology is enabling cybercrime on an industrial scale and the latest in Epic's battle against Apple. For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the notes for this episode. It's become almost a matter of course for veterans of the C-suite, distinguished academics, even former politicians to collect corporate board appointments like trophies. Meanwhile, companies collect eminent board members as their own badges of honor. But as corporations wrestle with such tricky issues as climate change and voting rights, is the board still fit for purpose? Dambisa Moyo has been a board member for Chevron, Barclays and Barrick Gold, among many others. Her latest book is called How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. Our technology and business editor, Tamsin Booth, spoke to her for Money Talks. We had a technical hitch during a couple of her answers, so please forgive any unevenness in sound quality.
0: The structure of boards dates back to the 1600s. We are due for an upgrade, and that upgrade is really based on the fact that the broader environment in which corporations operate has
4: changed materially and continues to do so. Today, some people argue that companies might not even need boards, that the market customers, investors could do a better job. From your experience on the boards of many companies, and you're you're still on the boards of 3M and Chevron, what do you make of that argument? I think that there's a gap in
0: knowledge, um, even at, you know, at top business schools, people don't seem to know what boards do. They don't seem to even understand uh, what levers corporations have to effect change. Traditionally, we have operated in a in a world which legally, but also culturally, has defined the board role, the company role, as being one that focuses on the primacy of the financial shareholder. We are no longer in that world. And, it, you know, there are a lot of arguments that companies have been doing a lot for society um, in Time of in um, We create jobs, we pay taxes, we build infrastructure, we are at the tip of the spear in innovation. But that world has changed materially. Traditionally, we've been very, very focused on financial expertise, strategic expertise, oversight and uh, operational experience. Actually, a big piece that has been missing, to my mind, has been around ethics and morality. The nature of the board makeup um, has to be
4: much more attuned and upgraded to reflect those changes. You write about an existential crisis for 21st century boards. Do you think that the companies where you have served, um, which is a large collection, have failed to rise to these challenges?
0: No, not at all. Um, Quite the contrary. By and large, boards and corporations are working, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to constantly uh, be alert and alive to the challenges of change.
4: And when it comes to your recommendations, you argue boards should be made more effective, strengthened, enable to serve investors more directly. It seems to me that that adds up to essentially handing boards a lot more power. Do you not think that there's a risk of a power struggle between the board and the CEO? I always say the CEO is not my friend. You know,
0: we are cordial, we get along, we're friendly, but we're not friends. I have to have the temerity and the the calmness of mind to be able not just to hire a CEO, but also to fire them. And so there's always a sort of a borders to traverse to make sure that there aren't uh, border skirmishes. Um, The proposals that are in the book, I don't think are about a power grab uh, in any way. Um, There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that uh, we have an oversight, We are not there day to day to micromanage and to make sure that the company is operating on a a daily basis. But that said, it doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to sharpen the um, effectiveness
4: of the scope uh, of the mandate that we already have. You very clearly call for more diversity on boards, but you also warn against an excessive drive to install diverse candidates. And you note, for instance, that there are excellent employees out there who didn't choose to be male or white. Can I ask you, are you for or against quotas in the boardroom, whether imposed from the outside by lawmakers or imposed by firms themselves?
0: I don't do normative yes or no answers because I just don't think that's how the world works. What I will say is that as a board member, I have a responsibility to allocate capital and resources in a way that makes the company that I'm overseeing most competitive Um, It is absolutely patently clear that having a more diverse board, having a more diverse workforce is a competitive advantage. What I will say is that I'm not in the business of fighting discrimination with discrimination. Um, We're always driving to have the best talent in the best seats whatever they look like Um, and I know there's a tendency for people to just rush over and say well diversity means women or racial diversity but there are many other aspects of diversity in the boardroom and in the business in general that we need to see um, if you're going to compete in a global setting.
4: One of the ideas you outline is that boards should have a new kind of ethics committee. I think it's a really alluring idea clearly in the current environment but you've got so many opposing views nowadays in society how do you avoid alienating big bits of society
0: well you know to my mind um the agenda on ethics is is no more or less uh, 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 fraught with uh, tension than financial aspects or operational aspects. None of these things are sort of slam dunk, oh yes, that's the answer. That is why the board exists.
4: But surely it's much easier to make rigorous judgments about financial strategy than it is about ethics or morality.
0: Well, we're building metrics right now. The fever pitch around ESG is almost entirely Focused on building out metrics um, that we can uh, monitor and really uh, ascribe value to, trying to figure out where those lines um, should be drawn. Yes, this is extremely difficult stuff. But as to my mind, um, you know, the, there's no more or less uh, of a, a clear answer than uh, you know how do we think about investing in China. So you know, yes, it, it is a tough area. Um, there are going to be trade-offs, like everything else. Um, you know, with with climate change, for example, people do believe that companies and businesses should be further along um, than uh, than perhaps uh, they ought to be. But the reality is that uh, we have lots of other considerations that we have to bring into play as we think about all of these things: pay equity, diversity, etc.
4: You served on the board of Barrick Gold Corp between two thousand and eleven and two thousand and eighteen, and Barrick Gold like other mining companies, has come under criticism for for the way it treats communities living near its mines. You joined the board uh, just as soon or after a Human Rights Watch report in 2011 detailed the rapes of local women by security guards at one of its mines in Papua New Guinea. Can I ask you, during your time on the board, how involved did it get in Barrack's impact on local communities? And do you think that your board reforms, had they been implemented, would have improved the company's approach and and maybe stopped those terrible incidents taking place.
0: So let me answer your second question first. It's impossible to foresee what challenges a business finds itself in. With respect to, to the broader question, which I think is essentially how much information does the board have uh, when companies end up in these corner solutions, whether you're Boeing and you have two planes that go down, whether you're, as you described, um, operating in challenged environments, of course, the board understands and is working on these areas in a very active way. It's not like people are sitting there and uh, nodding and, and cheering when these sorts of things are, are occurring. I mean, this is an atrocious scenario that you're, you're specifically highlighting, um, but the notion that we we don't focus on risk controls um, and and, and generally controls for the business is foolhardy. I mean, whether it's the trauma and travails of Brexit or operating in a war-torn zone, which has happened, or operating in an environment where the government changes and becomes much more autocratic and takes assets, the way companies are, are managed and overseen is to make sure that companies can win in all environments. Um, and that the wheels don't come off um, when the the broader environment, macro or in the local community, change. And the boards are extremely active um, in trying to solve and, and avert those challenges.
4: Dr. Moyo, thank you very much. Thank you. And our thanks to Tamsin Booth.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Brands and retailers have long given older shoppers short shrift.
2: What's up, world? Yeah, you. I'm Travis Scott. This is my McDonald's order. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school. Or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever.
1: Trendy adverts are mostly focused on grabbing the attention of the wrinkle-free, leaving older consumers forgotten about. But the pandemic has given seniors the chance to learn some new tricks online.
2: The spending power of ageing consumers is enormous, and it's increasing as the world gets older.
1: Martin Adams writes for The Economist.
2: In the EU, studies say that over 50s spent 3.7 trillion euros in 2015, and that by 2025, that could perhaps go up to 5.7 trillion. So all of that has led to boosterish talk of a silver tsunami that brands and retailers would be able to surf to a land of riches. But companies generally have actually done surprisingly little to capitalise on the potential of the old. As with many things, though, the pandemic is shaking things up.
1: Tell us more about that. Why has the pandemic especially had an impact on the behaviour of older consumers?
2: Clearly, it's not news that the elderly are particularly vulnerable to COVID and fear can be a big motivator. So with social distancing, they have moved to doing much more of their shopping online. In August 2020, Britain's Office for National Statistics reported that 65% of seniors had shopped online in the preceding 12 months. And that compared with 54% the year before And America's over 65, they spent 56% more on internet shopping last year than they did in 2019, according to figures from Nielsen IQ.
1: What sorts of things are older online shoppers buying?
2: Well, Hinge, which is an e-commerce consultancy, has got some interesting figures on sales of products that tend to be disproportionately bought by older people. And sales of things like meal replacements and adult nappies have jumped by 50% or more. And, you know, these are things that consumers might be embarrassed to shop for in-store or where online selections tend to be richer, or they might be bulky products that are difficult to carry. So some of those habits could actually stick as the world goes back to normal. Older people are also snapping up products that are not specifically aimed at them last year american older people spent almost four times as much on booze as they had in 2019 according to figures again from nielsen iq and dating is another area where the older generation are taking advantage of that newfound online savvy that they've developed silver singles which is a dating website told me that they've been seeing growth in the number of new users uh, under social distancing conditions that's hit 145,000 a month now
1: And are brands in turn realising that they've been missing a trick all along?
2: Well, if you look at companies that were already catering to older consumers, they've been forced to adapt. I talked to a company called GoGo Grandparent, which is an American firm that used to help elderly North Americans book ride-sharing services by phone rather than via apps, which they might have found fiddlier but uh, of course older people have been staying home for a lot of the past year or so that firm has diversified into deliveries of food to old folks with dietary restrictions and they told me that that business um, had grown 300 percent. And then if you look at the brands that weren't really uh, already targeting the elderly, some of them are taking greater care to do so. And one notable trend is a craze for healthy ageing. So um, Nestle, Reckitt Kaiser, Danone, they're all climbing on board with this trend. Uh, Nestle launched a milk drink in China, for instance, that supposedly aids mobility and cognition. Reckitt uh, is marketing one that targets immunity, and Danone is uh, investing in research uh, and development of its own. Lastly, there are the supermarkets, who, of course, have been giving the elderly priority slots for deliveries for online orders, which has proved popular. And I think, again, as societies reopen, and the experts I spoke to would agree, that those sorts of changes are going to be quite hard to roll back.
1: But even with these changes, given the spending power of the silver dollar, the online shopping experience still feels very tailored to the young and the tech savvy. Do you think this is just beginning? And what more do you think retailers should be doing?
2: Well, you know, it's not often as a journalist that you talk to a group of people on a story and, and everyone uh, agrees on a point of analysis. But in this case, they did. And the common refrain was that most big firms still haven't really entirely woken up to the opportunity that older consumers present and that there's a lot more that they can do. And if they want to take advantage of those opportunities, uh, the experts said that they would uh, they would need to work on making online shopping uh, even cheaper and easier with fewer fiddly forms and more help for people in filling those out. Another idea is to have more options of how and when to pay and perhaps to do more to reassure older shoppers who are particularly concerned about sharing their credit card details over the net that those details are are being properly looked after. And as companies wake up to this opportunity you would expect to see more wrinkle-friendly adverts. Right now perhaps just three percent of America's ad spending is aimed at the over 50s, according to MIT Age Lab. Oldies have learnt new tricks during the pandemic. And if companies want to tap into their spending power, they're going to have to follow suit.
1: Martin Adams, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our producers were Amika Shortino, Nolan, and William Warren. I'm Rachna Bogue. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.